What is up, folks? My name's Justin Kana, and you are listening to the Emulsion Podcast, specifically episode 27. And I'm psyched today because I'm not alone today. We have a guest on, and I'm going to introduce her in a moment. But first, today's beverage. This is a little bit of a throwback. I think I've actually had this combo before here on the show. It's a single-origin Ethiopian coffee that I just made with a little AeroPress action uh, out of this little striped mug here that has a, a J on it. But it's worth drinking today because my girlfriend and I, this is our favorite coffee actually, and they've been out of it for like weeks at our favorite coffee shop. But we picked some up like two days ago, I think, and we've been swooning over it ever since it's come back into our lives. So this is definitely amping me up for today's interview. Which is with a lovely lady who actually is a past colleague of mine. We worked very briefly together at Per Se when she when I was an extern there. And she spent a lot of time in the restaurant industry and worked at some pretty incredible places, but has since left that and voyaged into the podcasting domain by starting FNB Radio, which is a Charleston-based podcast taking a ridiculous look at the food and beverage community, tackling issues that don't matter at all. And I'm taking this from your website. I really, really, it is my sincere pleasure to introduce to the show, Lindsay Collins. What's up, Lindsay? Hi, Justin. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely, I'm stoked to have you. It's always great having other podcast folks on the podcast. Yeah, there's I no mean, nerves. It's like a podcast within a podcast. Yeah, kind of Inception. Find your, find your little place where you're like, is this your show? Is this my show? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so I'd be interested to start maybe by kind of letting you kind of riff a little bit on just introducing yourself, kind of giving a little bit of background on how you got your start in food and beverage, and totally. kind of how the hospitality industry found its way into your life because I know that's not always the same for everyone. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, it's it's definitely by accident and then kind of kind of took precedence just from sheer my interest kind of shifted. Um, but I was in music school. I'm from South Carolina. Yep. And I was in music school at the College of Charleston and then applied to Berkeley School of Music in Boston and I got in. And so I was like, okay, I'll go up there. And I kind of worked in restaurants. I started actually, and I've been talking about coffee. I started in a Starbucks when I was 17. Whoa. The first kind of, <laughs> kind of entry to, I guess, yeah, I guess that's technically a restaurant. Absolutely. Something. Was that out of necessity? Like you just needed the cash or it was... Yeah, I was in college and I was like, you know, I think I'll, I think I'll just try to get a job doing something that could be part-time and it seems like an easy thing and I was really into coffee. I still am. Um, so that was something that, that I just sort of started doing. Mm-hmm. And I got my first job in a restaurant in Charleston. It's closed now, but um, it was really, really funny that whole like just kind of faking it till you make it. Yep. So I it, remember like opening a bottle of wine and, and not knowing how to do it, but being too afraid to like admit. I just like <laughs> like yanked on the court for about twenty five minutes, <laughs> table side until someone came over and was like, "What are you doing?" Oh, jeez. So was it like a nice enough restaurant like that, or was it kind of like a? you know, kind of hole in the wall, or was it like a bistro? What was that restaurant like for you? Uh, it was called Trust and Chops, and at that time, it was like the, the era of the steakhouse, like yep. 2000, 2004. Okay. So it was definitely high-end. Like, the food was really expensive, and it was all really steak-heavy, and lots of big, like, chewy Cabernet Sauvignons on the list. And yep. Some really, like, yeah, definitely, definitely like a celebration restaurant. And going back earlier into my life, it was kind of one of the things that uh, is hilarious about it. I, I think I was five and they asked me what I wanted for my birthday and I was like, I want to go to a fancy dinner. <laughs> so it was like always really, really 
like something that I just wanted to know stuff about. I don't even know how. We were from a really tiny town. There were no fancy restaurants. Right. It was just something that uh, I had always been into. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah. where, what was the track like from then until we met? Because that was in, that was in New York City. Yeah. Uh, so when I got to Boston, I, I quickly like dropped out of school, <laughs> but I was, uh, I was working at a dive bar there, a pretty iconic dive bar called Bukowski's. Bukowski's. And, um, it's known for its like crazy beer selection and it's in a weird parking garage right near Berkeley. Uh-huh. And, um, and I just wasn't really making enough money. And a friend of mine was like, you should go to this place in Harvard Square. They like, you know, you have fine dining background. And I was like, well, that's debatable, but <laughs> it was enough to get me an interview. And, uh, that restaurant was actually pretty special. Um, it was called Upstairs in the Square. Okay. And it was in Harvard Square. And Julia Child's, like, house was pretty much around the corner. It was all, that's a really small part of town. Whoa. Um, and she used to come in there all the time before I worked there. And mm-hmm. as she got older, she kind of stopped venturing out as much. But she, um, she was friends with the two ladies who owned it, who were about her age and had been there. That restaurant was, I think, when I worked there in 2007. It was probably... God, it was probably 20 years old. Yep. So it was just really classic. Like, they had two dining rooms. One was really fancy tasting menu. Um, and I worked downstairs in what they called the Monday Club, and it was just a bistro. Okay. And it was like, yeah, like Yo-Yo Ma and, like, all these, like, Harvard professors would hang out there. It was just kind of like this little clubhouse. Wow. So what? Um, yeah, so it was there that I kind of got more interested in food and wine. Okay. Did you, and, did you kind of, like, work your way up? Like, what, what did you go from server to cap? Like, I, I, how was the structure? Did you did you have that kind of ambition, or you you were just kind of it was a job job? It was a job, but it was a really like it came really naturally to me. Like selling has always been something that I can just kind of do. Yep. And I'm really competitive, and I loved the food aspect, and I was really completely like enamored with the two women that owned it. Because sure. They were just it was kind of rare. Every other restaurant I had ever been in or worked in along the way it was definitely like male dominated yep. so these were like two really powerful women with like a, a really high like place in society in this world that i had never even imagined like harvard itself is just this weird club absolutely it's like so, an... and, and <clears throat> so many crazy people coming in there so it begs the question like who is julia child okay like, why is there a picture of her like framed in here because she comes in here all the time like, uh-huh why is this her seat at the bar and like what do i need to know about her so it sort of opened the door, and yeah, I guess I worked my way up. I mean, I'd always been a server there, but I, I became like, I, I don't want to say the top server. Sure. <laughs> I don't know how that works. Sure. But I was an integral part of the restaurant, for sure. And actually, the hostess, a former hostess there named Chloe Genevard, um, was uh, at that time a maitre d' per se. Okay. When I was like moving to New York, they were like, you know, where are you going to go? And I was like, I don't know where I can get a job. Yeah. <laughs> And she kind of like put the word and she didn't know me, but she got me um, an interview and set it up after weeks and weeks of trying to get a job in New York and not being able to. Yep. Like I, I would have never even applied it per se. I had no idea like what the restaurant was. I didn't know who Thomas Keller was at that time. Right, right. Um, and I was just <laughs> like, well, I know I can like sell wine. I know that... I'm good at this, and I've been waiting on these people who are, you know, they had VIPs. I was familiar with the whole sure. like, who's who thing. And I had started to learn, you know, tons about food. So I got the interview there and somehow kept going. They, you know, per se has an amazing, and Thomas in general, you know, mm-hmm. has that amazing um, 
ability to kind of look past your resume. Yep. Um, and, and that's something that I've always admired about the way they hire. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you're from the CIA, yeah, you'll probably get an interview too. Sure. But if you're not, they'll still like, they're going to give you a second look. Absolutely. Because if, you, if you're the right one. Yeah. Because if you, if you're seeking out per se, that means that your ambition is at a certain level. And then as long as they can, I would like to think that they can kind of, they're pretty good. They're, they're pretty structured now where they can set you up for success. But when you, when you arrived at per se, who was, was it John Benno? Was he, or was yeah, Eli? Yeah, John Benno was the chef de cuisine. Yep. Um, Eli was the executive sous chef. David Breeden was the butcher slash um, AM sous chef. Yep, yep. They kind of, like, rotated those roles out. Corey Chow was um, over the Comey kitchen, like, studying to replace Chung. Yep. Because Chung Chow was, they were all kind of getting ready to depart. Right, right. Um, Jonathan was leaving to open. Lincoln. Ben- yeah, Lincoln. Yeah. Lincoln. I would say Benu. Benu. <laughs> Almost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> leaving to open another restaurant. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I worked with JB. That's, that's what they call him. Yeah, that's, in- <laughs> that's intense. So uh, for probably about four months before he exited. Okay. And Eli took over. Right. And so did you, I mean, they have kind of a track record of starting people at the bottom, right? And then you kind of have to work yeah. your way up. So what did, what was your official role when you started there? I was a kitchen server. Okay, got so, it. Yeah, which is like food runner. Yep. And then how long did it take for that to go, like, work your way up? And then what was your kind of, like, final position before you left? And what um, was that like? That I went from kitchen server, I kitchen served probably for about eight months. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I'm pretty competitive. And I had, I really struggled in the beginning. I was really, really just completely out of my element and over my head in all capacities. But again, I really think they do an amazing job of being like, it's not like, why aren't you doing it? It's like, why can't we get you there? Right. It's always the right. question. Right. Um, so they were amazing at that. I remember um, specifically Daisy Freitas uh, looking at me and being like, I know you can do this. And she was training to become um, an expediter at the time. And I was just really like, I, I loved that job always. I would watch that job and it just seemed like kind of the, the heartbeat of the team in many ways. Like the front of house expediter was just so appealing to me because you don't in the dining room as much yep um there's a lot of that crossover with being like the chef's sort of right hand assistant sure really really important and fun Mm -hmm. and it's kind of uh organized chaos so i wanted to do that and they were like no we don't need to do that we need you to back serve Mm -hmm. which just seemed like (laughs) hell to me yeah i didn't want to i didn't want to do it because it's a really behind the scenes role absolutely and it like that's just not my personality. And they pushed and pushed. And Anthony Rudolph was the um, general manager at the time. He had just taken over for Raj Dastani. And uh, he was like, I need you to do this. And I was like, I'd rather kitchen serve. I don't want to do this. And we kind of went back and forth. And he was like, you're never going to expedite if you don't, you know, back serve. So I did it for about three months. I was pretty unhappy. Yeah. Pretty bad at it. <laughs> um, and then that role opened up for expediter. Perfect. And they, they finally put me in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where I stayed for most of the, yeah, the rest of the time. Sure. So what kind of sparked the decision to leave then? Um, oh, man. See, I was pretty happy in New York, and I was really excited about the path that I was on. But I loved being in the kitchen so much that I almost started, it started to become very um, appealing to me to even get more into the back of house. And so I started... Um, asking if I could stage in the back. And I think that's where we kind of met. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and <clears throat> I was kind of like, I want to get in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Eli was actually really open to that idea. At first, he was kind of like looked at me like I had three heads, but then he was like, "If you want to come in on your day off, that's on you. Right. I'm not going to pay you." Right. Um, but I came in and hung out and just learned how to do like basic stuff. Like I had never been to culinary school, so mm-hmm. I didn't know how to even hold a knife correctly. Sure. So just really, really novice. Um, and right about that time, I I won the scholarship. Um, that actually they do for front of house and back of house every year. Yep. Um, and you can apply for anything. It's totally open-ended. You write about what you want to learn about. You can say, I want to learn about making blue cheese. Yep. And, you know, if you go to Oregon, yep. do that. And if they like your idea, they'll pick it and they'll fund it. So that was, I think, my idea. I'm trying to remember exactly what I wrote. Yeah, because you have to but write was, an essay for it, right? You have to, <laughs> like... to compare and contrast... Um, fine dining in Europe versus fine dining in America and how that different, specifically Michelin-starred restaurants. Right, right, right. And that's so interesting because you picked you picked Noma. Or what? did you pick just, you, you, you wrote it as a kind of like a big thesis and then Noma fell on your lap because of Matt Orlando? Like, yeah, exactly. Got it. I wanted to go to Sophie Pick's restaurant. Yeah. Um, and that was where I had picked. And even with Thomas, like, writing a thing, being like, hey, can you do me a salad and let this girl come hang out? She was like, does she speak French? And I was like, <laughs> uh, no. And he's like, she said, then no. And that was so sad. And so right, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Like, that was my whole idea. And, and I was kind of like, what am I going to do? And we're just sitting there having a beer at the, um, the Coliseum, yep. which is the bar right across the street. And Matt Orlando was like, why don't you just come to Noma? I'm going back there. Crazy. In like, in like two months. And I was like, can I? Yeah. That was <laughs> so, am- yeah. That's amazing. So that's, that was totally by happenstance. Like, right. I did not even, that was never even something I thought could have happened. And it's there it was. My my Noma story is very similar because I asked uh, GKC, uh, Greg Kuzia Carmel, when I was I love the, him. Yeah, I know. So I asked him <laughs> when I. Exactly. So I asked him. He was my externship like manager guy. And right as my time was ending, I was like, I have two weeks before I have to go back to school. I really want to go to Mugritz because I knew that he had spent yeah. a season there. And I was like, well, I really want to go. I, I was wondering if you could just give me the email contact so I could email someone and, you know, get my, get my way in there. And he's like, well... You know, Mugaritz doesn't accept anything less than a, a full season stage, but I can get you into Noma. And Noma was like wow. this thing that was like, you know, it, it had just gotten number one. It was like it, it, all this all this press was about it. I knew nothing about it, very similar to you. And it was like, it was this weird like backup thing, but that turned into <laughs> yeah. this amazing Which like. Which ends up being like the most unattainable. Like, exactly. Now it's like, happen. holy shit, how did you get into Noma? And it was like my plan, my plan B. But that's so funny that we both have... <laughs> Very similar stories to that, but well, that restaurant is so so amazing in that way, and you know it's obviously not open in that form anymore. But it was it was really like that to be there too. I'm sure you right for that. Yep. Where it was just like this hodgepodge of like some people being just from around town, some people <laughs> coming from all across the across world. the world. Like, it was yeah. Really bizarre how that came together and worked so beautifully. And my favorite thing about that experience for you is that you made a video about it, right? Yes, I did. And actually, you know, I was just thinking the other day, I, I should put that on YouTube someday. Dude, I don't know, I don't I don't know how it's that. not on YouTube. Like, that was... I don't think so. Maybe it is. Yeah, I, I, I didn't put it on YouTube. I remember trying to and being like... Dude, you know, I can... It's so, so funny. Now. Let's do it. Let's do, let's, like, let's, let, let me help you with that because I think yeah, people need to see I, that for sure. Well, yeah. You know, 
absolutely. Yeah, people need to see that for sure. So, I mean, it was more or less like people like I've heard so many chefs talk to me because I do cooking stuff on the internet and I'm like and they're like, "Yeah, I want to I really want to figure out a way to kind of like vlog as a chef." And that is essentially what you were doing, you know, like 7 years ago in that in that situation where you're just kind of like, "This is what this is what happens when an American goes to Europe and spends time at Noma." So many people would yeah. would watch. Like I don't know. I, I I was fascinated when I when back in the day when I heard that you did that. I was like, "Holy shit, that's awesome!" <laughs> I was, Which is so funny because no one okayed that. Yeah. Carried this handy cam in there and no one said anything. <sighs> and I would just pull it out and be like, I'd go to my locker and just like grab it. Yep. And I'd just be like, because Matt was kind of there, being like, "What's up? What's me and you hang out in the PDR?" And he was sure. And be like, okay, cool. And I just never asked, and no one ever said. Stop. I got some crazy like footage of, of you know things that they do that are really really fun that later they actually did documentaries on like yep. their, you know projects and right stuff like that, right right uh, that's so, so yeah we should put that on the internet that's so great yeah. okay that's that's on the to do list for after this okay. so so after after um, New York you went back to Charleston and I'd be interested to kind of have you pitch f and b a little bit which for everybody that doesn't know it's literally spelled e-f-f-i-n like (laughs) f and b it's a visual pun yeah exactly which i love it's just (laughs) on audio format sometimes it doesn't come out like that so i (laughs) so how did f and b come about and you know just tell me a little bit about how that transpired yeah well actually i took a little side step i was in california for a bit right before i came back Mm -hmm. um and i was i worked in the french laundry and was kind of helping them out with an expediting role of right. doing that pop-up in London. Mm-hmm. Um, when they did that pop-up at Harrods, they sent a lot of their staff over there. So I um, I was hanging out there and kind of doing, um, I worked the Oyster Bar at Bouchon. I was just sort of bouncing around Yonville. Yep. And, and I wanted to come back um, east. I was actually, I got pregnant and while I was there, and it was really kind of a surprise. And I think I was 25 at the time. Wow. And I'm from Charleston, so I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't want to stay out here. I'm too poor to go back to New York and have a baby. <laughs> and the demands of, of the restaurant, at that point, I was working um, only in the back of house. Like, they had, Thomas had been super cool about, like, kind of transitioning me over. Wow. And I was bad at it, to be totally honest. Uh. I wasn't that good at it. And it was really hard to come from being super not to not to be an asshole but like i was pretty successful at the yeah. house part of it yeah so it was so hard to suck so bad mm-hmm. at, at the back of house aspect and i was far away and i was pregnant and i was just like you know i'm i'm taking my ball and i'm going home yep i hear you and yeah so i did and it was the, one of the best things but i took like a year off um and then i started working at fig i had another baby in the meantime they're yep. really close in age yep and i knew i wanted to start a family and I was kind of struggling with how to keep doing, you know, restaurant stuff is not conducive to family life or whatnot mm, anyway, really, absolutely. if I'm totally honest. Absolutely. It just keeps you on your feet for long hours, and it's <clears> not a family-friendly kind of environment. Nobody mm-hmm. can come visit you in <laughs> that, the middle of service. That is true. So I, I kind of felt lost, and I kind of felt spit out by the industry, like, if you're not able to do this, and then you can't be a part of this. Sure. Um, and that was hard for me to accept. And I, as I said, like being in music, like I had some recording studio background, and I know how to use some equipment. Obviously, not internet equipment as mm-hmm. much as mm-hmm. like literal analog, like mics and stuff. Right. 
Um, and I was working at Fig, and I still do. I've worked there since since I went back to work. Yep. And and I love it. It's a really it's a really casual, low key, super beautiful food right um, environment. But it wasn't really doing it for me as far as like I just missed the connections that you make when you're when you're in. It's such a small world. I know you know that. Mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. With like that kind of level of of restaurant. And we were outside having a bottle of rose one night, and the girl that works there with me, who's my closest friend, Nikki. This is Nikki. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> she, um, we were just talking shop. We're doing the normal thing that everybody does when they get off work is they kind of rehash their night. Yep. Or what's going on around town. Sure. Or who's leaving this restaurant. Yeah. Or chef's taking over this thing. And we were kind of being cheeky about it because we're, you know, we're just hanging out. Yep. And my boyfriend was like, someone would listen to that. And he's a big podcast enthusiast. Yeah. So it was kind of his idea. Um, and I was like, you think so? And we have this other guy that is really fun, Philip Michael Cohen, who also worked with us at Fig. And we were like, let's just try it. We like got some equipment, set it up, and it sort of instantly took off in Charleston. Right. And that's kind of where it stayed. I mean, it's definitely, it's growing all the time, mm-hmm. but it's the city got behind it so quickly and it's just so much fun. That's so good. So how yeah. often do you guys record? How often? Yeah. Uh, once a week. Once a week. Yeah, we, we do it once a week. And then sometimes, you know, if there's people in town, we'll, we'll do like three in a week and then take a couple couple weeks off. Right. But we typically have a, yeah, a Saturday <clears throat> record session and then we release the episode on Friday. Yeah. And we try to do them. Not any further out than necessary, just so they can be current. Yep, it changes so quick. Sure, and like you said, there's no, there's no rules, right? It's just you guys shooting the shit is basically. <laughs> yeah, literally shooting the shit. Yeah, and sometimes to a fault, like I'll listen to it and be like, "What is this?" Yeah, <laughs> there's no story. But it's entertainment, and I think that <clears throat> the biggest thing that I found was that. With the hysteria that people have about food and restaurants in general and culture and what's going on, it's just another facet. It's something else Absolutely. that they can dig a little deeper into the industry mm-hmm. because I, I realized even writers and people who are in food media don't have as much of a perspective or at least not a co- correct perspective as yep. someone who's currently working. Yep. When you're really in the trenches, there's, like, such a different story and, like, a dialogue that happens with, like, it's basically, like, you and your comrades talking about, you know, what it, what the last battle was like. And that's <laughs> something that, like, I mean, who wouldn't want to listen to that, number one? And number two, I'm I'm a, a completely supportive of it because that's my, that's my whole thesis with everything that I'm doing is that there's so much content that goes uncaptured with a restaurant yeah. that people are 100% willing to watch. It just, you have to go about the process of <laughs> capturing it and distributing it. So exactly. that's that's why I was excited to talk to you so much because, you know, like we both kind of had very similar trajectories, but we've kind of gone on these weird offshoots. But I'd be curious to hear what would be, um, maybe you're here already, but what would be a win for you for F&B? <laughs> oh, sponsorship. No, we're not there. <laughs> <laughs> Any sort of sponsorship whatsoever would be like a sure. super huge win. Right, right, right. Um. And we have had offers. It's not that it's, we're not there. It's finding the right ones for me. I'm pretty to. I, I want to keep it. It's such my baby that I don't want to like, for lack of a better word, I don't want to pimp it out to something that doesn't make sense for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make sense for us. Yep. And, and at the same time, I know that we can't keep asking three full-grown adults to like spend this much time on something exactly that they're not getting paid for. Yep. Um. 
but well, we had a piece of equipment break and we were like we can't put the show out and i was like i don't have any more money to put towards this thing like, yeah it was the interface mm-hmm. and within like 20 hours i just put a gofundme up because i was like you know if you guys like the show and you want to keep listening like this is what we need yeah just don't have the money sure and they like funded it like times five like so i know that people it's like sometimes you just have to be realistic and be like people don't mind paying for something that they love right and enjoy and yeah. supporting something you know, so it's just for us finding the right way to monetize it mm-hmm. that feels fair to us and to the listeners is would be a huge win. Right. For me. Right. Okay. Cool. So uh, it's just all about finding the right. It just has to feel right for you, and it doesn't have to. Yeah, it's it sucks to feel like something is like because I think the vibe that that the people get from the show is that we're real and we're genuine and honest mm-hmm. about it. So if you if you say that and then you throw in like some real estate <laughs> or yeah or like ki- kitchen <laughs> kitchen aid decided to field. yeah uh-huh yeah, where you're like oh you know what i love mm-hmm, mm-hmm. luxury real estate <laughs> you know, i can't uh, nobody's buying that from me right so. exactly uh so you mentioned that you are at a more you know kind of casual spot now i'd be interested to hear your take on kind of the current state of restaurants and more specifically on the high end of the spectrum because I know that a lot mm-hmm. of people come to this show lo- like looking for fine dining news because that's more or less what I end up talking about but totally do you just the current state of how things are are, are at right now where where we are in a, in a 2017 restaurant environment well I, th- I mean even in my like kind of <clears throat> the last 10 years of me working in restaurants I've seen a pretty dramatic turn towards a more casual model. Sure. And, and that's that's like hard for me to watch, you know, and, and everybody saw that review that Per Se got, and that was just mm-hmm. like crushing for, for me and for the people who work there and for people who support Thomas, and but at the same time very eye-opening because you see people doing it so successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's, there are people, you know, will say like, fine dining's out of style, fine dining's coming back. Like, it, critics kind of bouncing around yep. back and forth on is it in style or is it out of style sure and i think really what i've seen the only thing that is is true is that it depends on the restaurant got it because because like noma can go to mexico and absolutely blow everyone's mind mm-hmm. and say and you can look at that model and say yeah do you know how much money those guys made on that pop-up like, right it's insane you can't mm-hmm. even look. right right that is a success yep 100 percent but then you look at something else, and it's like just maybe, maybe here, um, Sean Brock is it hails from Charleston, and McCrave's reinvented itself this year, and they're doing a really like progressive, incredibly like intimate tasting menu, like they completely revolutionized their whole concept and changed the old McCrave's into a tavern. Yep. And then took their wine room and made that into this tasting menu, and it was met with really good reviews. But the restaurant is just not busy. Sure. And, and so that that's, I think, maybe not about the restaurant or or Sean as much as it is where we are, mm-hmm. you know? Yep, yep. It, it's, there's a lot of factors that go into where restaurants are right now because some places are like, I work at another restaurant currently in uh-huh. Normandy. Yeah. That, um, that is quite literally a continuous pop-up that happens nightly. Wow. Um. And it, it starts in a bakery after three, and it's this one guy cooking on two induction burners and a panini press, and Bon Appetit just named it, like, one of the best new restaurants in America. That's amazing. So that's insane to me, but yeah. the food is unbelievably elevated, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. It's just, like, 
you can find these little pockets where I think fine dining is its own niche and you have these like people like you and I right. who are always aware of it, but I'm so shocked to find that the majority of, of people are just now becoming aware of it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in many ways. Right. Do you find that? Um, I, that to me is like a little bit, you know, like when I think about that, I think about places like thinking about how like Lazy Bear started in San Francisco as kind of like this weird underground kind of thing that happened. And then I also think about places like 42 Grams in Chicago where that guy like started doing pop-up dinners out of his apartment and then decided to open a restaurant space. I think that's something where you have these people that are kind of like super on the inside that hear about it and like to go eat at places like that. But it's unfortunate that that's like, I, I make this reference all the time that if I am really, really passionate about headphones and I really, really want to make the best pair of headphones I can, I can sit in my garage and make headphones day and night and just sell them on the internet. And it's a thing that I can do. But when you serve food to people and you're a chef, there's no, that is the least invasive way to get your food out to people is, is these pop-up style things. And then it turns into this thing where how do you market it and how do you get people to come? And that so it, it's something that no one I think has, has really nailed down and figured out. It, it, it kind of turns into this thing that's like cool, but then how does that turn into something that you can actually do sustainably as a restaurant? And does it lose its cool after it becomes a brick and mortar? Right. It's really, really, it's, 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 it's interesting. I, I, what I'm interested in right now is the whole bringing back of like the white tablecloth. Like, have you heard of, um, like the grill in New York city, the review that just yeah. came out on them? That to me is fascinating that there's like a $93 lobster dish that people yeah. are like swooning over where like, I feel like 18 months ago, if you told someone that you're opening a place that has a $93 lobster dish, they'd like completely be like, fuck you. Right. Well, didn't that happen in Washington D.C.? They opened up yeah. yep. and it was just like an immediate like flip three months. And right. Like, Bye, right. Is, nobody's gonna ever do that. Exactly. So and then you have like Le Cuckoo and the Grill in New York City, where it's like we have we're getting this research now of like white tablecloth, like servers walking around in a vest, and people love it. Absolutely. It just ebbs and, and I love it. Yeah. Like, that's something that to <laughs> me is. I'm so. I mean, you started off in a steakhouse. For- yeah. Like that, that feels like proper service to me. And that feels like something that I, that I like yearn for the days when that happened. I can remember though, even at per se, like it's a lot of it's so much, you know, so connected obviously to the economy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when the economy crashed in 2008 and they were like still having these crazy opulent parties. Like there's always going to be that percentage of people that still want to dine that way. Yep. But they would make us hide the trays inside. They would be like, come in, you know. What? Come inside with the champagne. Like, don't stand outside by the door. Like, put that inside the door so that they did not want to appear opulent. Right. Yes. Right. The, the client. Got it. Like, you know, put this inside and then you can come into the room where they all get crazy and like roll around in caviar. Interesting. And, and it was like they wanted to mask that because they felt bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They saw, you know wasteful but i think that that's there's there's certainly a place for for that where it's like i want to be able to go to a place like that when i go to new york i'm gonna go to those places right right like that to me it's sneaky how you can go to a place where you're like yeah this like server came over one time and is wearing jeans and a tank top and his armpit Mm -hmm, hair and mm -hmm. my bill's 165 dollars for just me yeah like that can happen too yeah so where's the value in that sure you have to 
you have to like strike a balance and it has to feel worth it mm-hmm. to guess. And I think if that happens, then it, then it's successful in many different forms. Right. And I think that, I mean, if you think about like, like Europe in the 1980s, right, there would be like, you could, you could, all the chefs would go to Paris and train and then come back. Like there's classic accounts of places in England that would, you know, just basically be doing French food that they learned in, in England. But now I think the world is so aware that it's very difficult to have a concept that is unique because it's very easy to get ripped off. So I see it as something that's like, the market's big enough now because the consumer is smart enough now to know that, you know, you are trying to do new Nordic food because I saw it on Instagram and I know exactly who you're ripping off because I, I know what that food looks like. <laughs> so, so exactly, yeah. exactly. So you just need to, but that's, I, I'm not, I'm nothing but optimistic about it. Right. So that means that I could be here in Seattle and open up a new Nordic place. And there's no place here in Seattle that's doing Nordic inspired food unless you go, you know, out to Lumi Island and see the Willows in guys. So but then that means because of that awareness, people know what I'm trying to do and they're much more keen to be like, oh, I can get that here. Um, But I I do agree with you where it's kind of like hitting this weird point where it's like, like you said, it's just as expensive to go out to a casual place as it is for a tasting menu, like my tasting menu. So it's, it's going to, to me, it's going to go backwards, right? It's going to start to ebb the other way where the, the really high-end opulent places are going to kind of like come back into style, I think. And then there's going to be this surge of really cheap casual food because people are going to realize that they don't need a dining room anymore to serve their food to people, right? They can hire these food delivery services or like there's places in Seattle who are who will literally capitalize on like a 12-seat dining room because they know that people will just stand on the street to line up yeah. for their stuff and they're like yeah. well the street is just extra square footage for us where we can put people to wait for our <laughs> product you know what i mean Rig-free. exactly yeah. exactly so that is gonna like completely take over and then they're the ones that are going to be able to survive because the people with a 40 seat dining room and they they only fill it on a friday saturday night they may or may not go out of business it's right. it's it's really it's really fascinating it's just like such a big market shift and um it's great to see it i don't know it's it is. It's. I mean, it's refreshing for me. I think at the end of the day, it's just it. It's all about eliminating the the noise and the people who don't deserve to be yep, there. In yep. that way. You and know, because there's. It seems so sexy to open a restaurant now, and it's mm-hmm. so easy to make a restaurant look sexy on Instagram. Yeah. But if if their food isn't there, there has to be that X factor. Right. In whatever your concept is. Right. It has to be actually better because yeah, you're right. Anybody can get on and look at a mood board and be like, oh, I'm going to pull off this restaurant. <laughs> exactly. And it's hard for the consumer, unless they go in and taste the food, yep. to know the difference yep. and be like, what is the good place? Sure, sure, exactly. Everything's sort of getting turned on its head. Even Yelp, like people rely less and less on, on those sort of websites where that used to be like you live and die by the reviews. Yep, yep, yep. It's more about like which person endorsed it on social media. Right. So – Another question that I I would be interested to hear your take on is the people that are kind of involved in these restaurants. Because when you talk about that guy who's just kind of like cooking on an induction by himself, that that is like that's like a sexy story to talk about. But when you kind of get to the point where you need to open your own space, you need people. And a big question that I'm sure you've also talked about in your podcast is this quote unquote like lack of talent in the industry. Do you? 
agree or disagree with that statement and i'd be interested to hear you know possible remedies for the whole situation that's like the million dollar question right they, um the staffing crisis is real mm-hmm. for us. Mm-hmm. the charleston market it's 100 percent real and it's mostly due to the number of restaurants exceeding them got it got it i don't think it has much to do with talent like i feel like there's plenty of chefs that i'm like what are you why are you working in oyster bar mm-hmm. like you could totally be you know the chef of another your own restaurant you could chef your own restaurant a lot of it has to do with education i think okay there's people that have talent that don't have the business side myself included like i've been approached several times about opening restaurants and something like that's like a lifelong dream for me mm-hmm. and when i sit down to write a business plan i realize like nothing in my career no no job no nothing has prepared me at all yep to do that sure i sure. can i can do any other facet of the restaurant. I can wash dishes. I can sign. I can cook a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I could do my own thing. I could make a meatball sandwich truck. Right, right. It. Yep. <laughs> like, but I can't write a business plan and I don't have the, like, the knowledge, you know, and I'm, I'm teaching myself that now. Mm-hmm, but it's, mm-hmm. I think it holds people back and then they end up kind of settling in jobs where maybe they're overqualified. Okay. Or, and then they end up getting burnt out and being like, this sucks because the pay is terrible, mm-hmm. especially if you're in the back of house. Yep. Um, and the front of house jobs are, are around, but the ones that are really good, like people aren't leaving those positions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's tricky. I mean, that's why the, the restaurant, sorry. And no, you're fine. <laughs> the little, little kids. <laughs> my baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, um, the crisis has a lot to do with it looks a lot more fun to work in restaurants than it actually is and I've been not to be like when I was <laughs> but that's how it kind of feels it's yep. like you see these people come in and you're like they have no sense of urgency mm-hmm. they have no like willingness to work up through the top they want to come in and like where's my $300 a night yep, that's yep. what I'm here for yep, yep. is this easy because you're busy Sure. oh it's not okay then I'm Yep. And with restaurants opening in Charleston, at least, like, you know, two a day, it feels like. Mm-hmm. The grass always looks greener, and there's some big new chef coming in. And, oh, their restaurant's going to be so busy. Right. And you're going to, like, you're going to kill it there. Mm-hmm. So you end up, like, loyalty is scarce, and you kind of never stay at a place long enough to really cut your teeth and be like, do I actually even want to do this as a job? Yep. Or yep. am I just a college student that needs to make some money? So do you see it? I mean, I think I think about that as well sometimes because I always want to use that phrase like back when I started, like because yeah. I really do feel like that, like that window of like 2009 to 2014 was like the golden age of, you know, working in these fine dining. Yeah, because it's like no one had space. It was insanely competitive. Like if you, like I, I, I wanted to go back to per se, but I couldn't because it was like. There was a four-month wait list to get a, a Comey job, you know? Right. And now it seems like everyone is keen to hire. I went to a restaurant panel the other day, and someone asked a question from the audience, like, what's your hiring process like? And literally all three chefs on the panel were like, we'll take you right now. <laughs> like, yeah. like what? The, wh- when can you start? Like, the, yep. the zero, I don't care what your resume is. I don't care what your skill level is. We just literally need a set of hands. Yeah. So... 
I'd be interested to hear what you what you think restaurant professionals like chefs and uh, <laughs> no, you're <Okay>. fine. <laughs> It's lunchtime around here. Yep, exactly. Um, what restaurants can do? Yeah, like what, what restaurants and, you know, like um, managers and chefs need to bring to the table to kind of attract the best people going forward? Well, I I mean, for me, obviously, there I have my own set of standards. That right. I, that I, like, I will work at this place and I won't work at this place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think above all, like, even if you if you're never worked in a restaurant before, there's somewhere along the way it got it got like decided that you don't have to be feel important mm-hmm. at a restaurant. And the first people to really kind of show me otherwise were um, were Mary Catherine and Deborah at that restaurant, and then even exponentially more at Per Se, where they were just like constantly checking in, constantly making sure that they were offering continuing education, that you weren't getting stagnant in a position, that it wasn't like just here, come in and do your job because job is grind. It's right. basically a grind. Yep. Um, it's mentally exhausting in back or front of house. Um, and, and I think that people, either you're a busy restaurant and you're like, oh, we'll just always have staff so we don't have to like to treat the people like they matter. Yep. Yep. And that seems so so dumb, but it's really, it's that's how I feel. Like, mm-hmm. I can see that people are just like, yeah, we're busy, so come on in, you're welcome. Sure. You get seven tables. <laughs> and and that people don't care, and that sort of does this trickle-down effect mm-hmm. throughout the entire restaurant. Like, you can tell when a server doesn't care. You can tell when a exactly. cook doesn't care. Exactly, yep. And, and it's usually a direct reflection of the owner. Yeah, it comes from the top, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Like they set the tone for the restaurant. Yep. They set the tone for what place, the kind of place this is. Like, if per se, we wouldn't call something a rag because we don't work at a place that would have rags like just like just the way that you speak to the staff the way you talk about your tools the way you talk about your guests and they're never customers like those dumb things like that you decide as and there's a lot of these restaurateurs out there who just think it's profitable and don't have any idea about how to set a tone for a culture right or how to decide on who are we as a restaurant right and right. what kind of people are going to work here because that's what ends up attracting someone like, if you look at Franny's in Brooklyn, they have their own personality. Rest in peace. I'm going to miss that. Name. Absolutely. But they attract a certain type of employee mm-hmm. because they've decided who they are. And, you know, and yeah, they're busy. So that's a plus. Right. But it's more about, I'd say the place longer that was less busy where I felt like I had upward movement and someone who cared about what they were doing. Mm-hmm way longer than I would say at a, just a busy restaurant right. or a popular restaurant. Okay. So it's a combination of education, identity, and um, pro- yeah, like progress, I guess, would be the third yeah. one. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really important. Yeah, I'm nice. yeah, well, <laughs> trying to dissect trying to dissect that so that you can, you know, give that short little you, you can put it on Twitter and fit 140 characters. <laughs> <laughs> it's my dream. Exactly. Uh, so going back to restaurant experience maybe and maybe more or less along the lines of food media yeah. is Sorry, it <laughs> it's lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Is it do you think it's possible for someone to kind of dive into food media without restaurant experience? Like we took the path of, you know, cutting our teeth a little bit and then talking about basically our, our experience. Would Do you see someone able to start something, not necessarily talking about restaurants, but just 
starting like a, either a food YouTube channel or talking about wine or, you know, anything like that without any of the restaurant experience? I think you you have a hard run out of you if you do. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> because I think the people who are watching and who want to watch that kind of stuff, they either know a bunch or they know nothing. So you can count on like reeling in the people who know nothing because they won't be able to spot. Sure. Not a fake, but yeah. maybe someone who's not, who doesn't know what they're talking about. Yep, yep. And the people who do are going to immediately be like, that's hat. Right, right. And I, I don't think you're going to be able to fool those kind of people. And those are the ones that you want. You know, I, all I do is look at other people's blogs. And yep. my Instagram is nothing but food. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I, I think it would be hard for someone to just make, maybe with a journalism background come in and be like, you know, just because you like watching movies doesn't mean you can direct movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I hear that. Real, real, recognize but I mean, real. But I, I guess that, that's valuable, and that's the only thing that is kind of like as I try to figure out how to step out of the restaurant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Eventually, like that's my goal. <laughs> right. I call it to get off my feet. Sure, it's sure. My plan. Um. And and I'm like, how do you do that? And it seems like maybe writing or journalism or blogging. Yeah. Is, is a way to get paid or this podcast. Sure, sure. Um, to not have to totally be like, now I need a new career, and I'm 31. Like that's <laughs> that's a tough place to start. Absolutely. Starting from scratch. Um, I hope that that my experience will will be valuable enough to kind of put me ahead of somebody else because it is very enticing for people mm-hmm. to like dive into food media without having you know a genuine background, just right. maybe an enthusiast for something different. Sure. Is there is there a restaurant project that would be so like if it had that combination of those three things, like identity, education, and progress? Would you leave the podcast for a restaurant like that? Or you're kind of just like firmly, you put your foot down and you said, no, never again. Um, I'm, you mean like my own, my own restaurant? Yeah, whether it's your own or if, you know, like some, you know, chef came to town and was opening a place and was like, Lindsay, I really want you to be a part of this. And it, it would, it would take, it would take so much of your time and effort that you would be forced to leave the podcast on a hiatus. Is that something like, what would it take from a project to... It would have to be so much funny. <laughs> it would be a ton of money. Right, right, right. Because I've been down kind of that road, unless it was my own place. Okay, I still okay. have dreams of opening my own place. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I wouldn't work for somebody else unless it was for a ton of money. Okay. Because at this point, the podcast is something that's manageable with me working currently at yep. the restaurants, where I can come in and like clock in and make my money and leave, and I do well. Sure. And I love the restaurants that I work at. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very, like, manageable where I'm at. I mean, I'm obviously at that ceiling, like, you're not going to make any more money than you're making. Right Absolutely. Now. So I, I have this kind of, you know, I, mean, I guess things could always change. But for now, I'm pretty firmly planted with, like, seeing the podcast through. Right. And in the meantime, I haven't changed anything else about my career. I've just kind of added that as an element of creativity and hopefully something that will be profitable absolutely did you um did you get any backlash from people like in your network when they were like what is like because i feel like there there might be some people listening that may or may not have this thing where they want to put out some stuff about themselves but i mean yeah. you and i know how it feels like <laughs> phones aren't allowed in a lot of restaurants and it's like what are you do- what are you doing taking a selfie what are you doing talking to a camera what are you doing like Right. What what would be your advice to someone who kind of wants to put out a little bit more about themselves, but is a little bit kind of apprehensive to it just because of the current how restaurants are just by nature? I mean, 
I kind of struggle with this at FIG because they're very private and they want a lot of, you know, they, they're also very keen that you could be capitalizing on their <laughs> Yep. So everybody is so quick to notice when they might be getting shorted in something, and that's why I think people don't like that. But I... I just try to work with integrity always. Like sure. I try to think like, is this something I would want done to me? But at the same time, I put myself out there and that's what you're there to do. And that's the only way you're going to get anywhere. And that's kind of where everything is going. So be free yourself out there. I think you have to be respectful okay. about how you do it. Yep. And I think that, that that's, a, that's hard to balance and it's very situational. I mean, there's some things where I like, I'll be making a cappuccino. I'm like, oh, I want to, I want to do like a, a boomerang of me, and I'm like, you know, I'm at work. Okay. And on someone else's clock. Like yep. That's. Yep. That for me feels off limits. Just sure. Because, you know, and, but I think it's situational. I think there's people. I mean, I know there's people. I see them come in all the time that are, they're fully plugged in, mm-hmm. cameras out, taping their own little like Insta story with actual lighting at their table the entire time they're there. And, no, no one would ever tell them to stop. Right, right, right. I think it's about what what you're after. Like the, my podcast, I don't think it requires me to like. Is that shot of me making a cappuccino going to make or break mm-hmm. the episode this week? No, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. I then I'm going to leave it out. But I think you have to put yourself out there. I mean, that's. I I put a I put an interesting um I made like a a stagiaire kind of like contract at the restaurant in Norway and I put something in there that I was very very nervous to give to Chef Chris uh which was something along the lines of there was a clause in there something along the lines of you can have your phone if you are interested in documenting your experience here but everything else like if you're you know Snapchatting with your buddies that's definitely not allowed. But anything right. where you want to use your phone or any sort of piece of media to capture what you're doing here, that is totally allowed. And he was all about it. He was like totally fine. Because Yeah, because it's good prep for the restaurant. Absolutely. That was my thought behind it, right? Because if you're going to, you know, put it on your Instagram that you're here at this restaurant and you're doing this cool thing like, "Hey, we just got in 20 kilos of live langoustines from Norway and they're amazing and this is what it looks like." If the right person sees that on that Instagram, it's going to translate into a butt in a seat at the restaurant. Yep. And to me, oh, that that is like however that transpires. And that was partially when I decided that I thought that there was not enough content being captured at restaurants. So I was all about like using the employees that were already there to kind of scale that. But totally, um, which I think is really important. I think the 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 other risk that you run with that it's just so hard to control. That's where hiring, I think, sure. You hire somebody that you, that you think, you know, and you're a good judge of character, mm-hmm. and, and you can hire people who have integrity. Right. It'll be different. Like I know Chef um, Tuss. Yep. Was we sat down and chatted, and he was like, had gone to a strict no phone policy because somebody came in and took all his pasta recipes and skipped town. They wow. weren't there for like five minutes. Yep, yep, yep. I remember that story. And that's like an extremely, you know, that's. That's stealing. Yeah. That's disrespectful, and that's not doing anything to help the restaurant. Sure. And that's that is a dangerous part of that. Mm-hmm. But if yeah, but I mean, a hundred percent. Like every little bit of of press you can get um, with capturing things on and putting them on social media is, is beneficial. It just has to be. It's hard, it's hard to control. It's right. like this crazy like Pandora's box. Right. Right. Did I mean you you obviously don't have to mention any names, but did you get any weird backlash with people that are like. We with you like kind of putting yourself out there and doing media in addition to restaurant stuff. I haven't gotten any 
of that, but I'm I'm extra like guarded. Like there's a lot of stuff that my my boyfriend Jeremy edits mm-hmm. the show with me. Yep. And he's always like, "This is great. Like that's <laughs> meaty. We need to leave this in, and I, just to protect people because it's such a small community." Yep. I'll leave it out, or if I think that someone, you know, if it's if it's not necessary, I'll leave it out. Sure. And I err on the side of caution, and we've never had anybody that's been on the show or that's heard something about themselves on the show call and be like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we we try to like again. It's just it's it's all about integrity, and I think like being factual is is so important because social media and things when you're documenting stuff it can get so distorted so quickly so as long as you're honest yep about what you're doing and you're and you're not speculating i have no problem putting facts out there and if people get their feelings sort of facts and that's 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 on them yeah yeah yeah. anyway it's Uh a fact right right so that kind of stuff i have sort of stood behind you know something that i said on the podcast um it's usually guests that have been on there that maybe said something in a way that didn't, you know, or, or the press will come back and listen to an episode and then take out one little soundbite uh, from what they said. Uh, that's that's out of my hands, but that's unfortunate when that happens because it, it literally just happened with Alex Lyra. He said something about, you know, their concept at Bar Normandy. And he was like, yeah, well, you know, good luck. If you can do it with those three people, try it, fuckers. Uh, and, of course, the paper, like, takes it totally out of context and just puts the headline, try it, fuckers. No. Like of Bar Normandy. Yep, yep. just got named. So that's unfortunate because that's them just looking for clicks. Yep, but, yep. That's that's the media if you realm. listen to the whole show, you'll understand, like, what, what he was saying and why he was not being a pompous piece of shit. Sure, sure. So it's, it's you know, it's just on me to, like, I just try to, to be honest about what I'm putting out. But, yeah, you can definitely get people like, hey, what the fuck? Like, that's, you made me sound like an asshole. I'm like, no, sir, you just are an asshole. I'm not you. <laughs> right. Uh, what are you excited about right now? Do you have any podcasts coming up that you're, like, that are in the pipeline that you're, like, I'm super psyched for this one or? yeah. Yeah, we've had some really big guests that are, um, we take the tree podcast this week. Yep. Jimmy Rosenstrock, um, who does the blog Dinner of Love Story, which I'm just a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, she's written for Bon Appetit for many years with her husband, Andy. Um, and they have the sweetest little family. And she just does, she has two cookbooks out, one called How to Celebrate Everything. And it's just really like, it's the cheesy, like, mom and me. But I, <laughs> I loved that sort of storytelling. And I love the way she does it. And she's just she's just like that ideal you're like are you even really is this really uh, life? so that's um, so that's all recorded that just needs to get edited yeah, and uploaded awesome yeah, was on the show um we taped hers last friday so that will come out two weeks from whatever today is perfect yeah. perfect yeah and it's it's just a hard one she's sweet awesome it was fun to talk to her and it's it's cool to even like that's the exciting part about the podcast now is like the people that we're getting to be guests where you're like Oh my God! Really? Yep. Ask people. Yep. Yep. When you yep. Get a guess. You're like seriously, or if they it's even better if they've heard good things about the show, which she had, and she was really excited. To mm-hmm. come on. So that mm-hmm. was like super flattering. Amazing. Um, and then we're headed to New York. Whoa! In, in September. Yeah. So that should be a big old reunion. We're so meet a lot of people on the show. Yeah. So you're how long are you going to be there? You're just gonna is is that specifically for the podcast or it's for something? Yeah. Awesome. It's for the podcast. Yeah. Radio is going to New York. Um, Katie Bell. Yep, of course. Um, the GM and yeah, were you there with her too? Um, I was, and then I worked with her. Bro- her brother was my sous chef. Elliot was my brother, or er, Elliot was my yeah. sous chef at at the laundry. Um, w- w- was she on your show before? Yeah. Okay, I th- I thought I remembered well, seeing. Mm-hmm. She was on there, and she loved the podcast. Um, and 
actually was was like we should set up a thing so i think we're gonna do like trivia slash everybody come and then then during the week we'll um we'll just post up like somewhere central and yep. get as many people as we can dopeness on yeah yeah <laughs> i'm pretty excited yeah the network is real there so that's super awesome where can people find you online where can people follow along with you you can go to fmbradio.com that's e-f-f-i-n-b-r-a-d-i-o.com yep. And you can listen to the show there. But most people listen through iTunes. It's available on iTunes, on Stitcher, um, pretty much anywhere. SoundCloud. Yep, yep. Pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. We have Instagram. It's at FMB Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, I have a shameful like Twitter presence. I sometimes <laughs> do it, sometimes don't. Yeah, Twitter's hard. It's hard. Yeah. But we're definitely like, yeah. You're, all over Instagram. You're there. Okay, perfect. Um, <laughs> I absolutely have no doubt that you and I could talk for hours I, we've I talked we've talked for hours already in scheduling this show no it's so fun to talk to you always. absolutely so hopefully this is just episode one of many more with you here on the emulsion i can't thank you enough for being on the show well thank you so much justin this is a blast uh thank all of you uh listeners for listening i appreciate your ears if you have any questions for Lindsay, she just said where she can you know where you can go and find her and the show so go ahead and take a listen to f and b radio you definitely won't be disappointed my name is justin Kana. have a good one